Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today. We're going to be talking a little about sulfur. Sulfur fertility is important for all crops. Unfortunately, it's also important for all weeds too. So we're going to talk about sulfur just a little bit today. If you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's going on on your farm right now, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Okay, when we talk about sulfur, I'll just give you a few things to start the show here today. To begin with, there are two main forms of sulfur that we need to discuss, and there is an absolute difference between them. Elemental sulfur and sulfate. Okay, so sulfate is the form that the plant is typically going to bring in, and that is the leachable form, sulfate. Okay, when we're in the elemental sulfur form, that one is what we often call a slow-release type of sulfur, and it is something where it, it, it it's unusual. Let me, let me just say it this way. When you think about most fertilizer, you go, all right, I'm just going to throw it in the ground, plant's going to bring it in, I'm done. With elemental sulfur, it's complicated. There is bacteria in the soil that needs to effectively break it down and convert it over and it goes through a process in that process hydrogen sulfate should be created okay and what hydrogen sulfate is is sulfuric acid when you start talking about acid you go whoa that sounds kind of number one dangerous or number two is that going to have any big impact on my soil yeah it's going to have an impact on your soil it can lower your soil ph at least a little bit and it also can make some nutrients especially some of the micronutrients maybe a little bit more available in your soil so what it's doing isn't necessarily bad Uh, but we have to be careful with elemental sulfur Because if you put a whole bunch of elemental sulfur on, which we've done on our farm to try to lower pH, and it's a proven thing, and it will do it. But the first step is this. You have to have great drainage. If you do not have great drainage, what that means is you don't have enough air in your soil. You need to have roughly 25% air in your soil, and you will have that as long as you have good drainage. So if you're you're talking 25% air in the soil, then the soil life is just so much better. And along with that, some of the microbes that break down this elemental sulfur, turn it into hydrogen sulfate, and eventually you've got sulfate for your crop. Your pH is a little bit lower. Your nutrients are a little more available. That's all a good thing. If you don't have that air in your soil, here's what happens. You end up with hydrogen sulfide, and your soil will smell like rotten eggs And you'll say, well, that elemental sulfur didn't lower my pH. Well, no, you didn't have good drainage. So if you don't fix the drainage first, do not put elemental sulfur on. Okay. Now, if you want to put on 20 pounds, I mean, it's not really going to make much difference. But a lot of people are putting on 200, 400 pounds, something like that. Okay. In that case, you got to have good drainage. You'll get the hydrogen sulfate. Everything will work great. Otherwise, like I say, poor drainage means hydrogen sulfide. I mentioned earlier, when you get it into the sulfate form eventually, then it is leachable. So we have to be at least a little bit cognizant of that. Now, I'll just put it to you this way. If you're familiar with how easily nitrate leaches, they say that sulfate leaches about 
half as easily. So at about half the pace of nitrate. So in other words, if you go, boy, I don't have a whole lot of nitrate issues in terms of leaching, well, then you're definitely not going to have many issues with sulfate leaching. The other thing that I'll say, or last thing I guess I'll say uh, as we start the show here with sulfur, you may say, well, it's not that big a deal. My dad never fertilized with it, nor did my grandpa. Well, let's not forget, in a lot of cases, dad and grandpa had livestock and they spread manure, so they were getting sulfur on that way. And the other thing is, back in the, especially 70s, into the 80s even, uh, or earlier, there was a lot of acid rain. There was a lot of sulfur raining down from the sky every day. Go to China. That's basically what you're getting over in China with all the air pollution. Okay, Or even in some of our big cities today, we've got acid rain. But we don't really have that, especially in the Midwestern United States or in southern Canada, not nearly to the degree we used to. So because of that, we're not getting free sulfur on our fields anymore. Plus, at the same time, our yield levels are way higher. So when you look at how much sulfur a corn or a soybean or a wheat crop needs or really any crop it's a lot if you're getting big yields so anyway we'll continue talking about sulfur throughout the show but right now let's get to the ag phd mailbag it's now mailbag time with brian and darren this one comes from brandon in northern illinois he said we've been very dry basically all of may and the first three weeks of june zero moisture and we were dry before that boy that sounds exactly like us brandon we're in the same spot he said i'm wondering why our corn is trying for two ears per plant it's not just us or a certain hybrid i'm finding close to 70 percent of the corn trying for double ears i don't like it but i can't do anything about it i'm just curious what the scientific reasoning is thanks for your information and for what you do well, the reason a plant... Okay, let, let me step back. For all plants, their number one goal is reproduction. So the plant, when it figures out, hey, I have enough energy, enough nutrients, enough everything to produce more seeds, it's going to try to produce more seeds. Now, at some point, it may abort and it may say, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I better put all my energy to these seeds and make them viable. But yeah, apparently your crop thought you were doing better than you feel like you're doing. I don't know what more to say, but I wouldn't be worried about it. That's just the way it is. The, the crop's going to do what the crop's going to do. So I think yep, you're going to be getting, just fine. If you're getting plenty of sunlight and you get plenty of nutrients out there, then you're going to go for it. Your plants are going to go for it. All right, uh, get a little follow-up here. It's from Gustav. We were talking about reducing erosion and cover crops and no-till. He said uh, a couple other points to make on the cover crop benefits versus just straight no-till. Uh, he said we see improved infiltration of the water into the soil uh, and less standing puddles. We still see some puddles in just the bare ground in the no-till. And we still occasionally see a little bit of erosion out there, too. All right. Thanks. Good stuff. Yep, you're right. There are a lot of different benefits of managing things different ways, whether it be cover crop, no-till, whatever. One of the things that we're talking about for managing today is sulfur. We'll get right back to that discussion after this. Do you need to replant soybeans due to cold temperatures, heavy rains, or another weather event? Weeds don't seem to care, and you have limited options for last-minute weed control. This is when you turn to Spitfire herbicide from New Farm. Unlike other Phenoxy herbicides, Spitfire can be applied up to seven days before planting. Fields treated with the dual active power of Spitfire will benefit from weed control that will ease planting and help your beans establish a good stand. Spitfire from New Farm, here to help. 
Please join us for the Ag PhD Field Day coming up Thursday, July 29th on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day is the largest farm field day in America, and we have a lot planned again this year. We host the event just one day each year as a way to say thank you for listening to Ag PhD Radio and watching Ag PhD TV. We have free admission, free parking, and free food and drinks throughout the day. We've got yield champs from across the country speaking about raising higher yields and increasing profits. We also have speakers on drainage law, estate planning, changes in farm tax laws, grain marketing, and the H-2A program. Plus, we'll show you some of the dozens of research plots we're working on. Rob Sharkey will be there to do a live Shark Farmer radio show, and we'll have equipment both on display and running out in the field from Case IH, John Deere, Agco, and more. Don't miss the free Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 29th. Go to agphd.com to learn more and register. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice, with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're talking about sulfur, and this is one of those nutrients. As we talk to farmers really around the world, we're hearing so many guys say, man, I just found the more sulfur I put out, the better. And that's uh, pretty encouraging when you think about, wow, here's a nutrient that we aren't getting enough out there. Well, how much do I need? Probably more than what I'm using. I know one guy pushing for high yields is Kelly Garrett down in western Iowa. Kelly, what do you think about sulfur? Is that one that that you'd say for your farm has been showing a response? Absolutely. Everybody talks about NP and K. Sulfur and carbon are the two most misused and misunderstood elements that we have. Okay, so talk to us about sulfur. Now, in in your case, is it just feeding the crop what it needs? Is it pH adjustment, uh, anything in the soil? Where's the sulfur really coming into play? You know, like in your area or the Missouri River bottom south of Sioux City or my area in the Les Hills, sulfur is, pH is oversimplifying it. You need to get a little deeper. It's base saturation. My base saturation calcium is too high. You want that to be 65, 68% and I'll have it be 75 or even 85% in some bad areas, tough areas. And sulfur, that's what, you know, the one thing you said, Darren, and I, I, I sorry, but I got to disagree a little bit. The problem that sulfur, reason sulfur is misunderstood, it is, it is, it's a soil amendment first and a nutrient second. And if you don't put enough on to amend your soil problem, mine's base saturation calcium, there's not any left to be a nutrient. Ah, great point. Great point. When we think about uh, high calcium base saturation, I know that's one thing on our farm we've learned too, that getting your base saturation higher is no problem, but trying to bring it back down, that can be a challenge. So when you say you've got some 75% base saturation calcium soils, how long does it take you to move those down? Well, we can't, we don't necessarily move it down because if we move it down, then we move the pH. We have a product that it's a, it's a byproduct out of the liquid feed industry that uh, dad and I have a trucking company solely based 
just to move this product. And a 500-gallon analysis, we call it plant food, is 14, 105, 24, 105 sulfur. So we apply 500 gallons of plant food to our fields. It's our main source, of obviously, phosphorus. And then we're put, applying 105 pounds of sulfur per acre. And we will see in, in those high base saturation areas in our trials, we'll see a 40 bushel yield increase in corn and a 20 bushel yield increase in soybeans. Wow. That uh, that pays for a lot, no doubt about that, especially the response in soybeans is one that, is this more on that soil amendment side, or do you feel like we need a bunch for the nutritional side on soybeans as well? I think it's both. Absolutely, it's both. Yeah. Uh, that, if, you have a, if you have a pH or base saturation problem, uh, those problems show up in beans more so than they show up in corn. Corn is a little bit more forgiving than soybeans. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a really interesting, uh, outlook. And I know people look a lot at their corn for the, the nutritional, uh, applications, but a lot of guys in these two year programs are focusing on the corn and not focusing as much on the beans. So is this something that you're doing every year then, or is it, uh, every so many years on your farm? You know, it depends on the field and it depends on the weather, what we're able to get to. Uh, and it depends on the soil. It depends on that base saturation. We, uh, we try to put 500 gallons on everything going to corn. And a lot of that reason, though, is that inexpensive phosphorus. That phosphorus is very uh, plant available. In my drip irrigation, I can see my phosphorus levels go up in three days in my tissue samples. So it's very important to me to put the plant food on there. Uh, and then the sulfur, of course, helps with the base saturation. Obviously, in the beans, nothing wrong with the fertility, but it's all about amending that soil and uh, bringing that base saturation in line so those beans uh, really shine. All right, Kelly's definitely got some some great ideas. Do a lot, does a lot of research on his farm along with his family. And Kelly's going to be at the Ag PhD Field Day coming up next week. So, Kelly, I know you're going to take questions from from others. Are you prepared for that? Yes, sir. I'm prepared. I'm prepared for Kevin Matthews to give me a hard time on stage. And I'm prepared for the questions. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Kevin, you know that's coming. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's it's good. We we really love having you up and and love having the chance for a, a lot of our listeners to to get a chance to to meet you and talk a little bit about what's going on in your farm. Compare some notes and and ideas. Uh, Kelly, really appreciate having you on today. Thanks for for contributing to the show, and we'll see you next week. You bet. Thank you. Your field day is like Christmas for me. It's one of the best days of the year. I look forward to it. Yeah, I do too. I, I think it's a lot of fun just to, to get to talk to so many different farmers from all over. And we also get to talk to a lot of great folks in the university system. We've got Anthony Bly on with us right now. He's with South Dakota State University. And I got that right, Anthony. Brian always teases me when I say SDSU. And he's like, Darren, not all of our listeners are from South Dakota. They They don't always know what that means. They might think it's San Diego. Hey, that's good. I, I like that. I'm glad you said that. Thanks a lot, Darren. Hey, we're talking about sulfur today, and I, I get so many questions, but when you think about sulfur and the, the crop rotations that we're using in the state of South Dakota and some of the different tillage systems and cover crops and whatnot, where do you see sulfur fitting into the rotation for farmers here? You know, we, we see more and more demand, more, more and more responses to sulfur, um, We've really cleaned up our atmosphere. Uh, we're cleaning it out of our, our coal-fired power plant emissions. Um, we're just, there's hardly any coming out of the, out of the atmosphere anymore as rainfall. So the need for sulfur on, on uh, some of our uh, 
on our challenging soils is, is real. It's, it's, it's right there. Uh, you know, it's, it's really based and controlled by organic matter turnover and mineralization. Um, you know, we're mineralizing nitrogen from organic matter. We're, we're also mineralizing sulfur from that organic matter. So uh, if we're on very sandy soils, low organic matter soils that are no-tilled, that's probably the highest demand for sulfur that we have. And, and I, I think in general, um, most of our producers are putting sulfur on, on most of their crops most of the time. You know, you mentioned the low organic matter, and man, what a difference just in our lifetimes that we've seen with the organic matter levels on some of these farms that have gone to reducing tillage, uh, implementing cover crops in, switching up crop rotations a little bit, diversifying things. We get more organic matter out of there, and a lot of times people say, well, what does that really gain you, Darren? And you hit it right on the head, Anthony, with the mineralization piece. It's huge. It's a, it's a huge pool of nutrients, of course, it's carbon-based, of course, but, you know, for every every 2% organic matter in the soil, there's roughly a 1,000 pounds of nitrogen, of organic nitrogen, and I suppose that means, if, like, you know, 80 to 100 pounds of sulfur, and so, I mean, yeah, we build organic matter 2, 3, 4%, and we've just increased our nutrient pool uh, uh, drastically. Now, Brandon mentioned, too, that, that a lot of soil microbes are involved in, in sulfur and breaking things down. And I just think we don't talk about that enough, What the work that's happening with all those living things in our soil. Uh, how does that play in with the sulfur and, and just crop production in general? Well, you know, if we apply ammonium sulfate, uh, those forms are readily available to the plant. Uh, when we go to elemental sulfur, uh, some of these fertilizer blends I'm thinking of have a certain part that's elemental sulfur. You know, that requires that microbial uh, mediation, phyobacillus uh, 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 bacteria. And so if we haven't uh, applied elemental sulfur uh, frequently in the past, it takes, it takes the soil a while to build up levels of that microbe enough to help us you know, make that conversions of those of those elemental sulfurs. Yeah, it's really important, especially when we get into some of this ground that went prevent plant over the last couple of years in South Dakota, getting things going again, getting that microbial piece restarted in those soils, giving them some food and getting some crop to grow in those areas and caring for them well is going to be really, really important going forward. Talking with Anthony Bly here with South Dakota State University. Anthony, thank you so much. Really appreciate what you do. Thanks for joining us on the show today, too. Likewise, Darren. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You bet. Well, we're talking sulfur on today's program, if you haven't caught that drift just yet. But we're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Or you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. We'll be right back after this. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards. And that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. 
See program terms and conditions for full details. When it comes to soybean diseases, the longer you wait, the more damage you do. Stop the clock on white mold and other yield-robbing diseases with Approach Prima Fungicide from Corteva AgriScience. Approach Prima Fungicide quickly surrounds the surface of the plant for rapid absorption, then moves throughout the plant, providing full protection of each leaf and stem, even those that have yet to emerge. Uptake occurs on day one, nearly twice as fast as the next leading competitor. For more information, visit approachprima.corteva.us or your local crop protection retailer. Always read and follow label directions. Please join us for the Ag PhD Field Day coming up Thursday, July 29th on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day is the largest farm field day in America, and we have a lot planned again this year. We host the event just one day each year as a way to say thank you for listening to Ag PhD Radio and watching Ag PhD TV. We have free admission, free parking, and free food and drinks throughout the day. We've got yield champs from across the country speaking about raising higher yields and increasing profits. We also have speakers on drainage law, estate planning, changes in farm tax laws, grain marketing, and the H-2A program. Plus, we'll show you some of the dozens of research plots we're working on. Rob Sharkey will be there to do a live Shark Farmer radio show, and we'll have equipment both on display and running out in the field from Case IH, John Deere, Agco, and more. Don't miss the free Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 29th. Go to agphd.com to learn more and register. Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio today. Really appreciate having all of you listen today. And one of the things that is a benefit of this show is we're doing it live. You can call in. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. And you know what? You can contribute to the show. If you want to talk about sulfur, we'd love to hear your ideas or what you're doing on your farm. Or if you've got questions, we would love to help you regardless of what they're about. If they're about weed control or something else, that's fine too. Uh, but let's continue our sulfur discussion right now. We've got Ron Olson with us with the Sulfur Institute. Ron, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, so so many functions that sulfur has in the plant, and we're certainly seeing, at least in our region, an uptick in the usage of sulfur. What are you seeing on a global scale? Is sulfur a nutrient on the rise? It certainly is. Sulfur is, is critical 
for all crops globally. And uh, the, the advantage of education is that it really does, uh, through spaced repetition, allows farmers and, and, and scientists to, to just do a better job of learning how to use sulfur and the importance of it. So, yes, sulfur nutrition is very much on the minds of farmers on a global basis, whether we're in India or whether we're in the U.K. or China. It's an important discussion that they're having. Yeah, as more farmers are starting to pay attention to sulfur and starting to put that into their operation, we're getting a lot of questions around, okay, so sulfur can be leachable in certain forms like sulfate. Uh, how are farmers best managing that? I would assume you've got a lot of studies going on in, in terms of uh, best management practices around leachability and, and usability in the crop. That's true. We've got to keep the, the 4R nutrient stewardship principles in mind, the right product applied at the right rate at the right time and at the right place. And that applies to all of the, the nutrients that we, want to, that we need to come up with a balanced crop nutrition program. Uh, the timing of sulfate sulfur applications is, is very important. We do not want to put our uh, sulfur down, our sulfate sulfur forms down on uh, some of our coarse textured soils, the sandy soils in the fall. Uh, that application of sulfate sulfur would leach uh, by the time the crop was uh, growing the following spring. So a spring application on coarse textured soils is important. Uh, delaying any sulfur applications in the fall uh, when, to when soil temperatures have, have cooled down and the microbial activity has stopped. Just like when we apply nitrogen uh, in the fall, we want to make sure we apply it to soils that are below 50, deg 50 degrees or, or low so that the soil uh, microbes are, are very much inactive and, and that will allow the sulfate sulfur to stay around and be available for the following growing season in the spring. You know, another another question we've had too, Ron, is just around this whole global pandemic and availability of so many different things. Are, are there sources of sulfur that are coming from overseas? And what are you seeing now? Are, are shipping lanes getting more open? Or are you still seeing some struggles getting into the country with, with product? The the bulk of the so of the sulfur that's used here in the in the US is generated from our oil industry here it's re recovered sulfur from the from re oil refineries and um, in north america we don't really feel the the pressure right now but the, globally there is there is a uh, a, a tendency there is a slowdown or let's just say that the pandemic has caused those types of logistics problems to surface it's um, approaching critical but not yet critical so the the sources and volumes of sulfur are going to be able to meet the needs of North American farmers without issue. The other question I've got, since the Sulfur Institute is based out of Washington, D.C., are we seeing any legislation coming, any regulation coming that farmers should be aware of? Not on sulfur. We don't expect that to be the case. Um, the important thing that is taking place is that the industry has been very proactive to promote the 4R nutrient stewardship principles, and, and the industry is clear that certified crop advisors need to be certified with that additional certification. And uh, for, regarding sulfur nutrition and, and sulfur applications, I don't see new regulations uh, at any time soon. 
That's good news. I, I, uh, I always am concerned about that, if there's uh, anything brewing that, that might get us. I know we hear a lot about water quality. We hear a lot about nitrates and those types of things, but uh, but sulfur is, is so far not, not on the radar, which is wonderful. Uh, and now we think about this growing season, and as we get towards the fall application period, I know you talked a lot about that. Let's let's be very cautious and, and be smart and diligent with what we're doing with our sulfur usage. Uh, what do you see going forward? forward into this next year uh anything changing any new suppliers any anything new that farmers should be thinking about well one thing that's new on the horizon is that there are you know the last uh, let's say the last decade we've heard the term sulfur enhanced fertilizers there are new products coming to the market that have been enhanced with sulfur these are phosphate products that have had sulfur added for instance the microessentials suite of products that Mosaic has uh, brought to market. And now Nutrient has come forward with their sulfur-enhanced fertilizer. A new term that's break, that has been identified and is now being applied to fertilizers is called enhanced efficiency fertilizers. And uh, these newer sulfur-enhanced fertilizers can qualify for that enhanced efficiency designation. And that means that they are um, providing slow-release fertilizer to the crop uh, all season long, and those do qualify for various conservation stewardship uh, payments as well as environmental quality incentive program payments that farmers may want to start paying attention to. The Mosaic Microessentials and Sestera fertilizers were recently called out for that, and um, the ESN product that uh, Nutrien has is also one of those particular products. So farmers need to, as they think about their their overall program and their how they want to balance their crop nutrition program and and uh, reduce any impact that they are concerned about in terms of water quality on their per, on their land is to look at these kinds of enhanced efficiency products. How how much do these conservation stewardship payments amount to on an acre basis? Um, they it depends by on the county and so it's it's a range. It can amount it come out to uh, ten to fifteen dollars uh, per acre. Wow. Well, yeah, that's significant. It is. It's worth looking at and, and becoming educated. Yeah, very good. We're talking with Ron Olson here with the Sulphur Institute. Ron, thank you so much. Really appreciate the information. And, and I know our listeners didn't get all this. Ron sent us some additional information, too. And we got a little bit of reading to do, Ron. A couple of those things were quite long, but there's a lot of really good info in there. There is. I thought I'd share that with you. There's some ideas there that we haven't considered. And I thought you guys would be interested in, in uh, knowing about that. So look forward to our next conversation. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Ron. You bet. All right, Brian, we got a lot of information here on sulfur. And I, I like Kelly Garrett's approach, too, to, to think about sulfur as a soil amendment, but also a nutrient. And, and there are so many things that we can do with that sulfur that oftentimes are under applying if we're not looking at the soil amendment properties as well as the nutritional properties. And uh, as Ron Olson was saying, we're seeing a lot of fertilizers now being enhanced with sulfur and adding it in there. So uh, there's certainly a, an emphasis on sulfur in these nutrition programs. Yeah, there's going to be more of an emphasis on sulfur, but we still look at soil tests and tissue tests all the time, and we see low, low, deficient, low. So we got a ways to go, <laughs> but we're, we're starting to make some progress, so that's good news. And in terms of the soil amendment thing, you know, if we're just strictly talking the word sulfur, 
that's not really viewed as a soil amendment. But yes, in certain soils, well, a little different. it absolutely uh, like can for be. For example, let, let's take our discussion with Neil Kinsey about building potassium in high pH soils. And we talked about, well, we're putting some sulfur out there at the same time. And Neil said, well, that changes the discussion because now you get some sulfur that's going to help you and, and make some space out there taking uh, nutrients like calcium, for example, hooking up to the calcium and allowing your potassium to attach to those soil colloids. Yes, uh, but you got to step back a second and say, all right, first, if we got high soil pH, we need to make sure we have good drainage. Then let's focus on the sulfur, and then let's focus on the potassium and you know some of the other things that we may need. So now, if you're listening and you go, "Ooh, boy, this is sounding really complicated." It's not that complicated. If you've got specific questions for us, we can certainly help you out with that. Otherwise, we do lots of training, lots of workshops on these kinds of uh, these these kinds of steps you may need to take. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about sulfur, and we'll get back to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. In an uncertain market, you need to maximize the quality and profitability of your stored grains by controlling profit-robbing insects. A tank mix of Daikon IGR and Sentinel EC insecticide, or Daikon IGR Plus, offers the long-term control of an insect growth regulator and the knockdown power of a broad-spectrum insecticide. Keep your grain clean with grain protectants from Central Life Sciences. To learn more, contact your local dealer or visit bugfreegrains.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people, and we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Please join us for the Ag PhD Field Day coming up Thursday, July 29th on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day is the largest farm field day in America, and we have a lot planned again this year. We host the event just one day each year as a way to say thank you for listening to Ag PhD Radio and watching Ag PhD TV. We have free admission, free parking, and free food and drinks throughout the day. We've got yield champs from across the country speaking about raising higher yields and increasing profits. We also have speakers on drainage law, estate planning, changes in farm tax laws, grain marketing, and the H-2A program. Plus, we'll show you some of the dozens of research plots we're working on. Rob Sharkey will be there to do a live Shark Farmer radio show, and we'll have equipment both on display and running out in the field from Case IH, John Deere, Agco, and more. Don't miss the free Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 29th. Go to agphd.com to learn more and register. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. 
Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The end zone from FarmShop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit FarmShopMFG.com for more. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. I've been talking about sulfur on our show today, but we're going to hit the Ag PhD mailbag with your calls and agronomic questions in just a minute. Brian, let's finish up on the sulfur discussion just a little bit. Yeah, so one of the things we always have to keep in mind, too, is we do get some sulfur out of soil organic matter. We usually figure two to three pounds for each 1% of soil organic matter. So, for example, let's say at 5% organic matter, what I'm saying here is through the mineralization process where that organic matter is breaking down each year, you'll get, like in our area, so your area may be a little different in terms of heat and that kind of thing, but in our area we figure the 2 to 3 pounds, so that would be if I had 5% organic matter, 5 times 2 is 10, or 5 times 3 is 15, so 10 to 15 pounds of sulfur that we get. Also, sulfur is not the same thing as sulfate. In order to convert sulfur over to sulfate, you multiply times three. So 15 pounds of sulfur would be 45 pounds of sulfate. Uh, the other thing that gets a little bit confusing is like ammonium sulfate, uh, the analysis is 210024. And so you start thinking, oh, well, that's 24 pounds of sulfate. No, it's 24 pounds of sulfur or 24% sulfur. So anyway, does get a little confusing. Again, if you got questions on anything that's going on with your soil test, tissue tests, anything like that, it's not that complicated. We can absolutely help you out. Just email us, radio at agphd.com. All right, let's dive into the Ag PhD mailbag. Yeah, go ahead. What are you waiting for? All right, here we go. <laughs> uh, it's uh, from Dan to start off, and it's our favorite topic white mold uh he said all right guys can you please give me your opinion or rating on the contents of this product it's called pro pulse that contains the active ingredients from uh proline and the sdhi that's found in delaro complete he said i'm wondering how that will do i'm in southern michigan i know you guys like endura but i've i'm wondering about this product it's half the price and i could treat yep. for white mold uh timing and what kind of success do you think I'll have? Okay, so first of all, the new Delaro Complete has Propulse in it. Now, the ratio, I believe, is just a little bit different. But anyway, Proline and Luna are two, or Proline and that SDHI are two components of that. The other component would be Gem, a strobe. So somewhat similar to Headline, Quadris, and Avito. Anyway, yeah, Endura is definitely better on white mold. So if I said, look, I don't care about cost and all I want is the very best thing in the market, I would pick Endura. That's an SDHI, but it's about 30 bucks an acre. So you go, whoa, wait a second. I, I do care about cost. Okay. Well, if you care about cost, then you might want to look at some other things. For example, on our farm, what we're doing is uh, generic Domark plus generic Topson. Grand total cost, full rate of both in soybeans, nine bucks. So I got two modes of action. I got full rate on both of them, and I only spent nine bucks. Now, are either one of them as good as Endura? No. Is the combination as good as Endura? No, but it's at least pretty darn close. And now I spent less than one third the money, plus I got two modes of action. So I feel pretty good about that. Uh, now, certainly you could spray Topson all by itself or Domark all by itself. 
Uh, you could go with something like Proline, that's one of the active ingredients here in Propulse. Uh, Proline is not too bad, and Proline is about half the cost. So we do have some farmers who like to do that. That's okay. I'm fine with that if, if that's what you feel like you want to do. What we will typically do on our farm is we'll actually, like in soybeans, we'll go out and spray some cobra in those spots where we expect to have some white mold, maybe 10% of our acres, and we'll do that the middle of June. When we get that done, uh, cobra is almost as good as any fungicide out there, and the cobra only costs 5 bucks to run a 6-ounce rate. So that's my first choice. But once you get into July, uh, uh, let me just say this. We have to be, you need to be, preventative on these treatments. You can't be late. You can't scout and say, oh, I got a bunch of white mold. Now I'm going to spray. Yeah, you're too late. You already lost a whole bunch of yield. So you got to spray early. And I know it's hard to pull the trigger. So what we usually tell people is look at your history, wherever you had white mold, just go spot spray those areas. And at least then you've got a pretty darn good chance for a good return. Now this year, of course, with soybeans at $13 a bushel or maybe 14, depending on where you're at, you go, huh, well, this stuff doesn't cost that much. I think I could get a good return on just about anything. Yeah, you may be right. Uh, the, the risk you've got in terms of just strictly white mold it, and spraying for white mold is the temperatures are hot. Well, when temperatures are above 90 degrees, like three days in a row, uh, you have a lot less risk of white mold. This is the reason why there's white mold in the northern United States and not white mold in the southern United States. It all comes back to temperature. Think about it this way. Sclerotinia white mold starts as mushrooms. So if you have conditions that are good for growing mushrooms, then yes, you're going to have some white mold. If you don't have conditions like that, then you're much less likely to have it. So anyway, is Propulse the answer for white mold? No. Is it going to be okay? Yes. Uh, but there are even cheaper options if you want to do it. Like I said, Thompson, Domark. Uh, but this is this is pretty decent. All right. Thanks for the question. Get this one from Melinda. She said, I heard a radio ad talking about your field day coming up July 29th. I'm not going to be able to make it there, but I'm interested in any of the drainage law talk. I was wondering if there are any new regulations, uh, especially regarding drainage ditches, and just wondering if there will be any handouts from that day that could be sent to me. Hey, thanks, Melinda. Really appreciate the question. We do have drainage lawyers that will be speaking at the Ag PhD Field Day, and one of the great things about that is you get to talk to a lawyer for free. That's really nice. And not only any lawyer, it's some of the best drainage lawyers in the country. So we're really excited about that. Uh, the tough thing about it, though, is a lot of it is they do question and answer. So they look at what topics the, the audience wants to talk about and what questions they have and go from there. I'm not familiar with any drainage ditch regulation changes. Uh, I, none that I know of, none that Brian knows of. I, I, I don't know that we had said that in any of the advertising and that kind of thing, just saying that drainage lawyers will be there. But um, it's one thing if there are handouts, I guess we could we could send you a copy, I guess. But I'm not, I'm not expecting there to be a huge amount. No. Nope. No. So most of what happens at the Ag PhD Field Day, unfortunately, it's not going to be on our television show. It's not going to be put out on the Internet or anything like that. You kind of have to be there. So otherwise, we just say contact a drainage lawyer if you've got specific questions. All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, I got this one from Aaron in 
Oregon. And he said, I'm struggling with wild carrot or Queen Anne's lace in my winter wheat. I'm in conventional tillage and I plan to sell the wheat straw for off-farm use. Most chemicals that I use don't allow me to apply after the jointing stage, but the wild carrot seems to only emerge well after that stage. Any suggestions for a chemical with soil, residual, or any other strategy that might work? Well, thanks, Aaron. We really appreciate that. You know, here's a weed when we talk about wild carrot or otherwise known as Queen Anne's lace. That's a biennial weed. And in the first year, it germinates in the spring and it makes a rosette. And then in the second year, it bolts. And if you're in conventional tillage, I'm kind of surprised that you're facing a, a biennial weed problem like that. Normally, conventional tillage will get rid of that. But uh, one of the things that you might do, let's just say even if you're in a no-till situation, what the no-till guys are generally doing is after that first year, if they notice any of those rosettes out in the field after they harvest the wheat, they come back with Roundup and kill the rosettes in between crops. And then you never see the bolt stage come up. So if you've got a patch of Queen Anne's lace or wild carrot, I would say you're going to be cutting a little bit higher to make sure you leave those rosettes intact. And that way you could come back and spray the Roundup and wipe them out. That would be my suggestion. I don't know of anything after jointing that you could spray in crop that's going to be strong enough to take out a biennial that's in a bolt stage. Nope. Nope, exactly. So that's where we usually talk about pre-emerge herbicides. You could run with something like Sharpen, not actually labeled for control, but you're going to get really good suppression out of that, and you would certainly burn down anything that's there at the time you apply it. But again, that's a pre-emerge uh, called Sharpen. All right. Thanks for the question. Got uh, some feedback from Toby. He said, I was listening to your radio show here a couple of weeks back and a gentleman called in with a Japanese beetle problem and he was worried about nearby ponds and streams. It might not be practical for large scale farmers, but I use diatomaceous earth. It does a nice job killing bugs that it comes in contact with and, and uh, we toss some along with some garlic in our livestock mineral tubs, or we just sprinkle it out on the ground. Very fine subject and blows around in the wind and covers things well. Hey, thanks, Toby. Really appreciate the feedback. Stay tuned. We'll dive back in the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. You work for results. That's why the Enlist Weed Control System gives you flexible tank mixing, near zero volatility, a wide application window, and proven weed control. Because the Enlist system was built for your results. Get better weed control with no ifs, ands, or buts at Enlist.com. Enlist.com. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, Here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com farmall. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. 
Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Please join us for the Ag PhD Field Day coming up Thursday, July 29th on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day is the largest farm field day in America, and we have a lot planned again this year. We host the event just one day each year as a way to say thank you for listening to Ag PhD Radio and watching Ag PhD TV. We have free admission, free parking, and free food and drinks throughout the day. We've got yield champs from across the country speaking about raising higher yields and increasing profits. We also have speakers on drainage law, estate planning, changes in farm tax laws, grain marketing, and the H-2A program. Plus, we'll show you some of the dozens of research plots we're working on. Rob Sharkey will be there to do a live Shark Farmer radio show, and we'll have equipment both on display and running out in the field from Case IH, John Deere, Agco, and more. Don't miss the free Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 29th. Go to agphd.com to learn more and register. Help keep the toughest, most resistant diseases out of your fields with Lucento fungicide from FMC. An exclusive novel premix of two modes of action delivers broad-spectrum control and a long-lasting protective residual. Tackle key diseases in corn, soybeans, wheat, peanuts, and sugar beets. Choose Lucinto fungicide from FMC. Visit your FMC retailer or lucinto.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions for use. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. All right, uh, got this one in from Brett. And he said, I, I just uh, saw a recent news release that an area in China the size of Illinois and Indiana combined got 40 to 45 inches of rain in over, in just a week. And they're saying, their government is saying they're fine and they've got a, a minimal amount of crop loss, but everyone else says the entire area is underwater and there's nowhere for it to drain. Uh, thanks for the feedback there, Brett. I hadn't seen that. And wow, yeah, that's that's unbelievable to have that much rain in a week, just crazy. And, you know, we talk about drainage, Brian. I don't know anybody that has a drainage system set up to handle 40 inches of rain in a short period of time, let alone in a whole season, hardly. No, that's for sure. So, yeah, I mean, we feel for people when they get weather events like that, uh, regardless of what country that they're in. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty tough for farmers and tough for everybody. All right, got one in from Daniel, and he said, just wonder if you guys have seen this weed before or know what this one is. I don't, Daniel. I see you got your weed guide out in the back trying to identify it as well. That's generally what I do, too. If I find a weed that I have not seen before, I try to I try to find a weed guide for the area, that kind of thing, and see what it is. But no, don't know what that one is. It looks like a new one to me. You know what I usually do is I just go kill it. Go spray it some way. Roundup and be done? Uh, well, maybe. It all depends on, on what it is. So you can tell right away, though, is it a grass or is it a broadleaf? Well, it's not if a it's grass. A broadleaf, right. It, so if it's a broadleaf, there are certain herbicides that are really good on so you broadleaf. you might use Freelex. Would that be a go-to that you'd give a shot? Where was it at? Pasture? It doesn't say. Yeah. So they, so when you- It's in his throw, office right now. Yeah. We're in his shop. Right. But when you th start throwing out herbicides, we have to look at, okay, what crop are we talking about or non-crop? And then we just pick products that have 
broad spectrum. So Darren brought up Freelex. That's a new 2,4-D choline uh, that would be great in non-crop areas or pastures. So if I was in that area and I had that weed, I'd at least try that at a high rate and see what happens. A lot of stuff, quite frankly, in farming is trial and error. And if you only have a little patch, you try a little bit, you spend a few dollars. I mean, it doesn't amount to much. Try it, see if it works. If it doesn't, you look for something else. So if you can't identify the weed, that's usually what I do. All right. Speaking of weeds, uh, Marvin has identified one. Marvin from California said, you guys featured purslane as a weed of the week. It's a plant with high nutritional value, and if you're starving, you could actually live on it. Hey, thanks, Marvin. That's You know, there are a lot of plants that you can eat, and we talk about this a lot. Like for us, one of the plants we really like growing on our farm is corn, but when it's out in our soybean fields, it takes away from our soybean yield, and it's a weed, so we got to kill it. But you're right. Purslane is one that you could eat. I don't find it very tasty, but some people maybe do. All right, got this one from N.W. who said, I'm wondering about grass and broadleaf control in ginger post-emerge. But there aren't many options, N.W. There's clethodim that's labeled to control grass weeds post-emerge, and that's kind of been a go-to product for us in a lot of gardening situations. When we look at the, the broadleaf weed control, though, man, most of those herbicides, from the little bit that I know about ginger, most of those herbicides do ding the crop up a little bit. And many of the sources that, that we looked at said, man, hand weeding is much better. Or if they could use a mulch in between the plants, something like that would be a lot better in the ginger. Uh, not too many broadleaf type herbicides. The only thing that we did see is a lot of farmers are, are starting to use hooded sprayers and trying to spray in between plants, that kind of thing, without spraying on the plants. Then they could use Roundup or AIM or some different burn-down type products. But, man, the broadleaf weed control is tough. You're going to have to use crop rotation to, to try to keep those broadleaf weeds down before you plant the ginger. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Edward said, Atrazine is illegal in all of Europe. Is it because it's dangerous? In the United States, there are millions of pounds of it used per year. Well, well, okay, so the, I, I'm just going to speculate on what they've done over there because I haven't looked at their rules or their ruling or whatever, but I know this, in, a, in much of Europe, there, there are some fairly high water tables. And the problem with atrazine is, is it's very leachable. We talk about that often here in the United States, this is the reason why we don't like atrazine used pre-emerge ever. So you will never get a recommendation from us that has atrazine as a pre. It has nothing to do with agronomics. It has everything to do with the environment. Because we know that almost all the atrazine ever found in groundwater has traced back to pre-emerge use and, quite frankly, in a lot of cases, higher rates, it just makes sense to spray the stuff post-emerge. Just use it post. It'll work just fine post-emerge, and then you don't have all that risk. When you spray it post, you've got weeds and crop already up you've got roots down in the ground to absorb it you got more sunlight you got more heat uh, longer days so just spray it post-emerge and then that that ends that problem or pretty much ends that problem um, is atrazine dangerous the ld50 is the same as table salt um, that's not saying we want you to dump it on your food like table salt but uh, no, we're not like super worried that atrazine's going to hurt a lot of people or a lot of things. But you know what? Uh, people don't like chemicals in their water. 
and we certainly do not as farmers. So whether it's dangerous or it's not has little to do with the fact that um, we got to be careful with it and responsible with it. And we know when we know that it's leachable, we can't use it in places where we've got light soil, pre-emerge, and heavy rainfall events likely to occur. So when you do that, you're just asking for trouble. And the problem is, yeah, I mean, it only takes a few people to screw it up and then it gets banned in a whole country. So even though, like in my state, we may have zero issues, and I'm, I'm not saying we do, but I'm, my example is, okay, let's say we had zero issues here. The United States is a big country. So there could be somebody 2,000 miles away from me, screws something up, and all of a sudden it's banned for me. So not really fair, but that's just kind of the way things work. All right. Thanks for the comment. We appreciate that. Um, this one's from Aaron. He is out in Montana. He said, what would be the herbicide options for controlling downy brome or cheatgrass in grass crops grown for seed? Obviously, we fight a lot of downy brome in the wheat crops. Would it be the same herbicides? Are many of them labeled? We have grass crops for seed in Wyoming, uh, such as Indian rice grass, western wheatgrass, Canada wild rye and more. You know, Aaron, that that really does bring a good point up about some of these, uh, what would be termed as minor crops that that aren't on millions and millions of acres out there. A lot of times, it's tough for the ag chem manufacturers to get products labeled in those crops because it costs so much money in our country to get a product labeled. So there are different programs like the IR4 program that that look at options for those types of crops and herbicides that make sense. Yeah, those specific crops. I don't know if I've been asked for weed control questions in any of those, but I I know the options that are available in wheat are some of the better ones that are often uh, ALS mode of action herbicides, like you think of Beyond in the Clearfield type crops. You think of Outrider and uh, Olympus and some of those products. I don't know if any of them are labeled in those different crops. Yeah, Outrider can get used in pastures, so that tells you in certain grasses it can. You just have to look on the label to see if your grasses are on there. I don't think that the ones he mentioned are on there. But, uh, again, you could check with your state and just see if they're working on anything with that IR4 program. Uh, Otherwise, what we always will talk about is when you've got an annual grass like downy brome, we have to think about, all right, it's not there long term. It's just there with the one season. So if you're if you've got perennial grasses out there, uh, we want to figure out any possible way that we can get those grasses to choke the other grasses out. That usually means getting it thicker and taller. So cutting it higher. Uh, and leaving residue out there and having good fertility, not just nitrogen, but looking at the whole program. Today we were talking about sulfur quite a bit, but there could be some micronutrients you're short on and that kind of thing. You want to do everything possible to make that grass as healthy as you can so it does choke out the downy brome. One other thing that I would throw out that you could potentially try, and again, you'd have to look and see if it's labeled, but fungicide. There aren't a lot of people with grass who are using fungicide, but that could be something that could potentially help, especially with some of these strobes. They've been proven to lower crop temperature, to uh, reduce ethylene production, to increase antioxidant levels. So they don't just control diseases. Anyway, uh, those would be our best suggestions if you can't find anything that's labeled. Thanks for the question, Aaron. We really appreciate that. And if, yeah, if you do find something out, why don't you let us know as well uh, about some things that would work in those crops. 
Thanks for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.